0: Welcome to another episode of the RN Mentor Podcast. I have the great pleasure of having Reginald Bannerman with me this week. He is the Director of Nursing and Service uh, for Psychiatry. Uh, Reginald has over 31 years of experience in the healthcare field. He obtained his undergraduate and graduate degree from the Johns Hopkins University School of Nursing and an MBA from the School of Business. Reginald has been with Children's National Health System for over 15 years. He specializes in the area of reduction of the use of restraints and seclusion in the hospital setting. As the current director of the Division of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science, uh, he has led his team to a 75% reduction rate in the incidence of seclusion and restraints over a decade. Uh, He is an expert in the area of seclusion, and restraints, regulatory competencies and managing aggressive patients. Reginald is also a certified senior crisis prevention intervention and autism spectrum disorder trainer. He is also a member of the behavioral health system wide task force, which is tasked to work on initiatives to better serve patients and families on the mental health continuum. Reginald is also leading work in the area of managing the aggressive patient system wide with implementation of the behavioral emergency response team. Uh, Reginald has presented his work internationally served as a content expert on the American Nurses Credentialing Center on board certification examination at the nurse executive level. And he has several publications related to adolescence and mental health issues. Welcome to the show, Reginald.
1: Thank you, Dr. Ali. It's my privilege to be here with you, sir.
0: Thank you, thank and you. Thanks just, for having me. Just call me Ali, that's that, that's fine. Uh, yes, uh, so, uh, so, uh, I have, I have a special place in my heart uh, for mental health. Some of my own work is related to mental health issues with the veteran community. Uh, So thank you, first of all, for the work that you're doing. And I want to really get into, uh, before we get into too much into your work that you're doing now, uh, I want to know how you got into the world of nursing. Uh, You know, you have over 30 years. Uh, of experience in healthcare? How did you get involved in in healthcare and in the world of nursing overall?
1: Yes, so I come from a family of, um, you know, lawyers and and, and doctors. Um, So growing up, you know, it was always, you know, um, something that I wanted to do. Um, Actually, I started off, you know, trying to, you know, go into medicine was my main goal. Uh, But, you know, I went to see my brother at school and his roommate happens to be a male nurse. So it was like, whoa, um uh, the nurses? Uh, that was a big eye opener for me. And then, so that started my trajectory, you know? Um, and it, the funny joke is that I really took nursing as a, a joke and it kicked my rail <laughs> at the beginning. But, you know, um, I'm, I'm glad that I took that path. Um, I, I don't have any regrets and the success that we've had, you know, it's not just myself, but my colleagues that I've had the privilege to work on. Uh, there's always someone calling you working on a new project. And hopefully during this conversation, I'll tell you some other projects that I'm working on, but um, it's been a privilege and um, I wouldn't trade it for anything.
0: That's fantastic. Uh, what was your experience going through uh nursing program and your evolution into, uh, into uh, uh, your actual role as an RN working, for example, bedside and the units you worked with? Yeah, so
1: um, I... Started off, you know, from New York City. Um, I went to Borough of Manhattan Community College. So I got an associate's degree first. But whilst I was doing that, I was also working, you know. So I held a job like from eight to four. Um, and then I took the evening classes at Borough of Manhattan Community College, you know, for my associate's degree, um, graduated in nineteen ninety-four. Um, but you know, like I always say to kids and everybody that I get to talk to, there's nothing that you know, it's given to you on a silver platter for some of us, including yourself, I'm sure. First generation, we have to work really hard, right? So, for example, I remember in the summer months, sometimes I'll deliver newspapers in the morning, like wee hours of the morning. I go to the depot around 2 a.m., pick them up, go to Manhattan, you know, start delivering. I mean, some buildings 55, you're on the 55th floor delivering the newspapers. You know you do that and then come home get ready to go to work in the morning you know just so you can have enough funds to pay for your summer school and whatnot so it hasn't been all like a, a silver spoon in my mouth but working hard and, and believing in 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 what you want to achieve uh, as the end product you know has been the way to go and um like i said nursing has been great to me uh, you know at the beginning again like i said i didn't take it that serious not because I wasn't interested, but I was like, okay, well, I wanted to go to med school. So med school um, and nursing, yeah, nursing couldn't be that hard compared to, you know, uh, med school. And so if I'm already having A's and whatnot, and you know, um, uh, trigonometry classes, then nursing should be a piece of cake. But as you know, the material is quite extensive. Sometimes you know you have to really sit down, buckle, and learn. Right. So I wasn't really paying them serious until i took a couple of quizzes i was like whoa you could do better than that big man and that was (laughs) when i started to say you know what andy really need to buckle down and get the job done you know so it was nice that i got my rear kicked a little bit in my fundamental classes but thereafter it was just a matter of you know staying uh focused and and getting the job done
0: that's fantastic uh where did you start uh, once you graduated what was your what was your first job
1: so my first job when I graduated, um, I finished my training in New York and then I moved on to Maryland. Um, and so once I was at Maryland, and it was kind of funny because I really wanted to work at Johns Hopkins University Hospital, you know, Johns Hopkins Hospital, downtown Baltimore. So I was communicating with the recruiter uh, whilst I was still in New York. And so that was my first job. So I worked at the Johns Hopkins Hospital uh, in Baltimore, uh, 600 Wolf Street mental health uh, for Maya five so that's where it all started and i was there for about two years and then i got an opportunity to move up into a supervisor role from the inpatient to an outpatient this was a substance abuse um, clinic so what we did is that we gave um, patients that were using heroin we gave them methadone right uh, as a substitute Uh, so we take their urines make sure they are clean The more clean they are, the more they don't need to come to the clinic. So they may get a a two week, like they may come on a Monday and Thursday, Monday to, um, you know, get three days worth and then maybe Thursday or Friday come in and get the weekend's worth. And we could randomly call them and do a urine test on them, you know. So I did that for about three years. Whilst I was doing that, I also got a chance. I was born in Ghana, West Africa. Uh, It's my country. I'm a U.S. citizen now. But. I had a chance also, whilst I was finishing doing that to go to Ghana in the year 2000 to do some work with some doctors from Hopkins. Uh, We did, you know, travel to do some work in Ghana. Um, And some of the people we went, we were also from Ghana. So it was sort of like a mission um, thing that we did. And whilst I was there, you know, it was like an epiphany. I was like, okay, well now you gotta, you know uh, go back and try to get another degree. Um, and so that was when, you know, um, I went back. I mean, I, by then I already had my BSN, AA to BSN. And then I went back for my master's program, you know. But it, it's always good to, you know, sometimes leave the U.S. And while you're away, sometimes for me, it's a good time to connect, right? Because you recognize that people don't have a lot, but they are very grateful for what they have. Right. And right. then you recognize that, wow, I have all these opportunities and I need to take advantage and, and do something with it. So for me... That was one of the epiphanies that during that journey, I was able to say to myself, I need to do better and then try to reach out to help others.
0: Uh, that's fantastic. Um, uh, how, how did you decide um, and, and what, what area you're going to get your master's in?
1: Yeah, so that's a very, very good um, question. Um, the moral of the story is that I think that once a nurse, always a nurse, Um, I always believe that once I have my bachelor's degree done, I'm a registered nurse and, you know, nobody's going to take that away from me. And it was a matter of growing, uh, I call it growth and development. And when I ask myself, I'm someone that I don't like when people say you can only do this. So if you tell me I can't do something, I say, watch me, right? So it was more like, ah, well, I'm already a nurse, I need to diversify, I can't put all my eggs in one basket, you know, so I wanted to do something, maybe an MPH master's in public health or master's in business administration. And as I thought about it more, I was also very fascinated with business in general. Uh, So I figured, you know what, why don't I just get my MBA, you know, because I know also here in the US, uh, even the MBA alone, people are always like, whoa. You know, they, they, they are very, very quick to say, wow, you have an MBA, you know, so combining the nursing and, and the business aspect, I think it was a no brainer. And then the last but not least, a lot of times when you hear nurses, they say we're touchy feely, right? Like we come, we don't have the facts, we don't have the figures. So I wanted to equip myself that when I sat at the table with other stakeholders, I want to make sure that I'm very well informed. I have the data, I have the evidence that I need to ask for what I need. And it's not about the feelings or the touchy-feely or anything of that, right? Because there's always this concept about, well, how do you balance business with safety and taking care of patients? And we have to recognize that we don't have infinite amount of resources. Our resources are limited. Therefore, it's a very fine line. You have to trade the needle. You have to balance safety with the business aspect. You, one can not be bigger than the other. And I think that there's a way to continue to do
0: that. Wow. Um- so have you because uh, I know I know a couple of colleagues who've gotten their uh, MBAs in lieu of going to a master's degree in nursing. Uh, yes. how has how has that been uh, beneficial in your nursing role? Because uh, yes. I'm, I'm gonna assume you you didn't open up shop somewhere and <laughs>
1: no no, no, I, I think it's very, very good. I mean, so, for example, uh, just simple examples. like so I, I'm also very big on academia. So like teaching and whatnot, and you recognize that some of the schools, if you want to teach, for example, if you don't have an MSN, they don't want to allow you or they wouldn't necessarily look kindly to you to teach, right? So having a master's in nursing and uh, health systems, I mean, that was my uh, focus. I think that, you know, that's definitely uh, something good that really allows me to also look at academia as possibly an option for me. Um, from a business perspective, I think having an MBA, uh, to be able to read a budget, understand the basics, right? And and we talk about, yes, I don't own a business, say, running a company, but I know how to read uh, 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 a statement sheet, you know, tell whether the assets that the company has and what they owe, Are uh, they, you know, um, in terms of their liquidity, return on investments and whatnot, you're able to have those kinds of conversations. And I'll tell you, uh, for example, at Hopkins, they have the traditional MBA and they have the medical MBA. I chose to do the traditional MBA because I felt that I already know something about nursing in that arena. And I wasn't going to indulge more into the medical. I wanted to talk about, for example, a BMW, and Mercedes-Benz. They make cars, right? But why, why do they target certain segments of, the, uh, of society? And, you know, in terms of, for example, at one point I remember Mercedes-Benz really wanted to get into the US market and they ended up teaming up with Chrysler, which was a really bad investment for them at the end. But they were so determined that they were looking for any opportunity to get into the market and it backfired on them. At the end, they had to get rid of that portfolio. Their Mercedes-Benz portfolio was doing very well, But the Chrysler portfolio didn't do that well, and they had to get rid of it. So for me, again, as I think about, you know, business and nursing, I think I enjoy when every day I look at the stock market. I'm looking at Apple, I'm looking at Google, you know, um, I hate not to bring it up my own 401k, manage it myself. And it's kind of neat when you look at it and you see whether the stock market is going up or down. And uh, funny story, I told a colleague of mine, buy Apple before they did the split recently and it just blew up you know within one year it went up almost 150 dollars i don't do stock market because i'm someone that i'm very very risk averse i rather do it through 401k but i think it's very very fascinating from a business perspective to look at the companies look at the strategies that they have you know whether they're going into a new market or trying to be uh, the leader in their market you know and typically i look at aol for example when they came out, they were the leaders, right? But they, they were using telephone lines. They didn't think very smart in terms of cable lines and files. And guess what? They were overtaken by the Verizons and others. You right, know? Right. So uh, as a leader, whether it's a nursing or in business, you gotta be on top of your game. You have to read, you have to keep up with what is happening. Right. right. Um, so anyway.
0: How has it been benefit? You're now in a leadership position. How has it been beneficial? Because I, I, I can, um, I can imagine, um, it's it would from a from a director position or a managerial position having that sense of, uh, of business really comes in handy. Because I know sometimes you we see, uh, a, a, like a large number of people with MBAs getting hired for. Uh, leadership position, especially in the ambulatory care setting, where it's more yes. business, business-minded driven, right? It's a it's usually for-profit type mm. of a thing. Um, how has it helped you from a from a leadership position having that MBA versus another degree?
1: Yeah, I, I think it helps to some extent. Again, uh, being very, very um, able to read the financial statements, the what are the variances? You know, actual versus budgeted, right? know what is the bottom line and i i don't want to you know um sit here and brag but for our division um, (laughs) over the years i've been there you know every year with the black there's not been one single year that we have not been we run a very mean but very productive um you know division you know and you know it's again i want to balance right it can't be just about business because We also have to remember the people that we're working with are the people that make the business run, right? So it can't just be cut, 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 right? How do we also manage, take care of them, make sure that their needs are met at the same time while also trying to make sure that safety is being managed appropriately, you know? So I think the business degree comes in hand. I wouldn't say it's the end of it all, but it's very definitely valuable. It's an edge. It's, It's definitely an edge. that you have that you can quickly, in your head, I'm able to spin numbers and discuss discussions with people. And they look at me like, wow, do you have like a calculator in your head? (laughs) 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 How do you come up with this numbers? You know, and it's, again, you know, I'm a numbers guy. I I love numbers. Yeah,
0: Yeah, and I I think that's that's one thing. I mean, um, when you think about it, I I really wish, I think... uh, nursing was more numbers focused at yes. some point especially in mm-hmm. leadership positions because the people that you sit down with at those committees and meetings mm-hmm. those are the number those are the, the bean counters right exactly, their, exactly. so if exactly. you can speak the same language because a lot of them don't speak healthcare, but yes. if you can speak numbers like they do i think you yes. have advantage over them uh in making sure you're getting what you need Absolutely.
1: I mean, you're right on the point. If I was a dean of any university, school of nursing, right? my undergraduate and graduate level, they would take a business class.
0: Yeah, yes. I think that's so, important. It, it, that's so either,
1: important. Yeah, and for the undergraduate, we don't want to bore them, maybe a class on budgeting, Yeah, a, a one-credit or two-credit class on budgeting. How does budget, yeah. you know? And uh, for the graduate level, maybe the three-credit class you know, about how you manage a budget and whatnot. But the moral of the story is this. Uh, a lot of times in nursing, and you know this, we take clinicians and we put them in a business uh, like a manager. And some of them, they're really good in the clinical setting, but they don't have the business mind, right? right. So they argue about why we can't get this, 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 and that, right. you know, until infinity. But what you have to recognize again, it is a business product. Right. right, so you got to make sure that the bottom line you're not cutting corners patient safety is held to a very high esteem. By the end there's also a little bit of resources, so that we can continue to pay premium pay when we need to buy the
0: equipments that we need to and continue to grow from that strategic viewpoint. yeah that's that's an excellent point um yeah so uh, maybe i'll invite you to 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 guest lecture at one of my one of my leadership classes on business. Without a doubt. doubt. (laughs) That would be fantastic. (laughs) Absolutely. Because I think I had some of those same arguments. I'm like, why can't I have this when I need (laughs) it?
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, let's talk a little bit about COVID. I don't want to divert. But even Uh in this COVID age, right, on the units, you know, again, preaching to them that the hospitals, if you look at it, uh, children's hospitals, bad and good. We have some kids that had COVID, but the numbers are small. Right? right, compared to adults. This is affecting a lot of adults. So right. we, in this age, we have to really manage very carefully, right? So, you know, it's even more like a business entity. We have to really talk about how we manage strategically well, because it's right. not like we're getting all this money. Uh, Pre-COVID, I was always full and I have the privilege of doing whatever the hell I wanted to, do, excuse me. But <laughs> today, I really have to, you know, dot my I's and cross my T's because I have only limited resources available to me. The hospital is saying, well, it's not business as usual. Right. Uh, we don't know what the future holds. So you have to hold the line. So right. you have to be extremely careful. And yeah, this is where, you know, you, you really, you know, sit down and ask yourself, okay, so where are the, you know, areas
0: where, we can make amends and what are the areas that we are it's non-negotiable right uh, i know i know i have some uh, people that i know work at several children's hospitals that i know those hospitals made significant cuts mm-hmm. like you know from salaries from personnel just because during the the COVID times their numbers went really low and yes. the same money was not coming into the institution so yes yes um, so,
1: I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm very proud of children's hospital we have not laid one person off.
0: That's fantastic. But one one that's thing fantastic.
1: they've asked us is that, you know, look at your bottom line in terms yeah. of your expenses. And if there's anything that you can do, uh, definitely do. Uh, for example, traveling. So of course, COVID, we can travel. Right. You know, I had the privilege to, you know, potentially travel overseas to do some uh, uh, talking. Uh, we couldn't go because of yeah. COVID. I mean, so not one, two or three people. I mean, that's also savings for the hospital. Yeah. And we're also being asked to, when you don't need to, you know, if you can give some time, uh, whether it's unpaid or some time off that you can take. Uh, so there are a few things that we're doing to help the hospital. And I think yeah. that that's really helping us
0: out. Yeah. I mean, if we can, if we can save jobs, I mean, I'm sure everybody's willing to.
1: Absolutely. And, depending. you know, for example, pay raises, right? I mean, we all can forego a pay raise in this hard times yeah. for a year or two. I mean, if someone told me, you won't get a pay raise, but I'm not going to lay you off. I'll take the, keep the pay raise and i keep my job <laughs> yes, <laughs> any a given day. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Hopefully things will be back to back oh, to yeah. somewhat of a normal and uh, everybody yeah. gets their pay raise.
1: We're very, very optimistic. We're <laughs> yes. highly optimistic. That That's fantastic. If the trajectory with the vaccines, yeah. the way they're going right now, if we can only hold steady for yeah. a month or two more without yeah. opening a lot of the U.S., I think that we're on the rebound and the future Fingers looks crossed. bright. Absolutely. Um, absolutely yeah the
0: hope is definitely there uh absolutely. so let's talk about a little bit about your about leadership mm-hmm. um and how you ended up uh in the leadership role and then mm-hmm. i definitely want to get into uh the work that you've been doing with uh, restraints and the seclusion because i mm-hmm. uh, i'm very impressed with that and it's something mm-hmm. i think is so necessary across the board from you know from children all the way to adults. So, um, so talk Absolutely. to me about how you got involved with leadership and then yeah. we can get into the rest. So I think um, I'm one of those people
1: that my path was a leadership path because after two years, I was already in the supervisory role. Yeah. And then once and I did that for about three years. So by the time I left Hopkins um, as an entity, I had already had five years under my belt, I was vested. And so I started to then moonlight as I worked through graduate school because I wanted the freedom of not having to wake up in the morning and go to a job 40 hours. And that was going to interfere with my ability to go to school. And so I worked around my you know, um, school um, and I actually took almost part-time about nine credits. I would do like um, the spring, before the spring break, there's like a, a, a like early part of December, uh, January 2nd, through like before the semester will start, I'll take like a three credit class. Mm. And then the spring semester, I'll take two classes, which is about six credits. And then I'll go to summer school. And
0: right. then
1: I'll go back to the fall. So I was in school from January through December, you know, uh, pretty much. But, um, uh, it, it, so I think after that three years in the supervisory role, and when I went back to get my MS and MBA, I think for me, that next trajectory was managerial. So when I went to Children's, I went in as a manager. I went in 2004 and I was a manager from 2004 to 2009. And it was funny because as you all know, uh, one to three year goal and then three to five year goal. And I was at the cops of my five year goal when I moved into the director role. And so I've been a director now almost since 2009, almost 12 years. And right now, yes, I, I wouldn't mind if the right opportunity um, came, yes, to move to the uh, VP level, I think definitely something that I'll consider. But having stayed in the local Maryland area, situated here, you know, um, I work for myself that I own a business and real estate that I manage myself um, in addition to working at children's in addition to teaching. So I have my hands full on any given day, <laughs> you know, so that has kept me in the director role because, you know, you also know with the VP, that means you have five, six, seven different units under your, you know, it's a little bit more headache. Um, yeah. So, you know, right now, I only have two units. It allows me the ability to do different things, right. You know, I have the adolescent unit, I have the child unit, I have a manager that reports to me, Our physician staff, you know, that I work with fellows, residents, you know, and as part of the leadership team for the Division of Psychiatry, um, I think I'm very well positioned to move to the next level. But I'm content, if you ask my opinion, where I am right now. It's not because I can't move up, but that means it's going to require more of me, you know, and then that may take away my ability to teach, my ability to manage my own small enterprise that I'm doing on the side. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I'm very, very content, but it doesn't mean that if the right opportunity came, if
0: an Apple or, you know, Google came calling,
1: <laughs> definitely I'll consider.
0: But that's a really great point. It's not, you know, uh, you have to figure out at what point in your mm. life you have to say, you know what, I'm good here because of, mm-hmm. because of that, but yeah, exactly, exactly what you said is like, because I can do X, Y, and Z. Z, also. Absolutely. And like, absolutely. It's not the matter of not having the ability to mm-hmm. move mm-hmm. up in role or pay or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 absolutely. What does that take away uh, from, my, from my life right now if I move into that role with additional responsibilities, additional, you know, it's going to need more of me. Anytime you move up in the world, uh, and somebody's willing to pay you more, there's usually they're also, they're paying you for your time. So it's going to need more of yeah. your time. Yeah, and and, and I, I think for me,
1: that is the um, part that, you know, I, I'm i very, very careful about. You can make so much money in this world, especially yeah. with this MBA combination, if you get to some of these companies, but you also can't lose your soul. Yeah, so, so true. I, I also appreciate My ability to volunteer at Hopkins, work with students. I mean, it's been a niche for me. Um, uh, To whom much is given, much is required. I'm sure you've heard me use this phrase before. And I always want to make sure that the future leaders were able to mentor them and help them. So uh, being able to do all of these small little platforms uh, means the world to me. Um, Again, you know, it's not because one can't grow you know, and there's a saying, what does it give a man to, you know, gain the whole world and lose his soul?
0: Yeah.
1: Right. So, you know, it's not just about the money. It's also about what can I give back tangibly. Right. And I also make the argument. Some people write like uh, Bill Gates and others and um, the gentleman from uh, uh, the mayor of New York. Uh, what's the guy's name? Bloomberg. Bloomberg right. They, yeah. They're, yeah. They write 350 million. Of course, I can't write that kind of check. But there's also, <laughs> there's also something valuable about me giving my time right. and spending the time with a nursing student, looking at their resume, giving them cues about how to interview, how do you move from your leadership class into the professional realm? Uh, because I think that as much as nursing schools do, do a very good job, there's a bit of a gap. Now I've graduated. I have that license. I have my full-time job. I'm going through a preceptorship. How do I move from that space to then six months in, one year in? I have a lot of experience. That gap, managing and helping them navigate,
0: and to recognize that there's a little bit of a gap, but it's highly doable. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, yeah, definitely agree. Um, so, uh, so you're doing some incredible work. Uh, from, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not in the, in the mental health world, but just looking at a, at what you, what you've, what you've shared with me, with your, uh, uh, with the units that you work with, talk mm-hmm. to me about the work that you're doing with mental health. Yes. So, and experience and all that stuff. So, um, it's been very rewarding. Um,
1: you know, I went to my job with one goal and my number one goal was that For my legacy, when I left this organization or the day that I leave Children's, um, one of the things that I wanted to make sure that the kids have a good unit, a very beautiful unit that they can come and get a resting place as they heal. And that has been checked off. Uh, It was accomplished 2017, 2018. So I'm at peace. If I don't have to go to Children's tomorrow, I'm at peace with myself because that was one of the biggest goals that I set for myself. Uh, we had a $13 million renovation program that I led uh, for our division, from breaking ground to the day that, you know, the project was finished, the CEO coming, having all the fanfare, opening it, you know, it, it wasn't easy. I mean, so we we went down from a 28-bed unit to a 20-bed unit, while this was all being built, so we were still taking patience. You know, and that's a very, very difficult place to be Whilst you're building, uh, taking patients, but also building at the same time, right? So it's sort of like you have two different jobs. You have the building job, and you have the daily managing job. And so, whilst this is being built here, it's a new environment, the workflow, all of that has to be dealt with because when you're ready to move in, you're ready to move in, right? You can't say, oh, well, we're doing business over here. This is what that looked like. Well. Just take the same idea and move it, you know so that was a bit of a challenge uh, to say the least, but we were able to finish that. I actually presented some of this uh, in in Texas, Austin, Texas, at a conference um, about when you're building. and um, so that, that that was a very, very good project. the The next big project that I worked on is the suicide uh, screening tool that we get, just got published. I send you a copy of the article. Um, you know, it just came out last October. I mean, the pandemic of suicidality in the United States and around the world is extremely high. Right. And with COVID it's even gone up a little step further, right? And I make the argument, this kids used to go to school. They used to play sports. They will have dates with their friends. They could travel with their parents and loved ones, right? Um, all the kinds of stuff that they could do. They could go to a game, They could go to a musical event. Well, with COVID, yes, some of these things can be done online, but doing it online and doing it in person are two different concepts, right? So the kids are feeling very overwhelmed. And also, when you think about it, the parents are home. So a parent is on a Zoom working, whilst the child is also trying to do Zoom to do homework. Um, A kid with ADHD, I mean, the attention, how much attention do they have, even though when they're on meds? Right. Right. So this has been a very, very difficult uh, situation. So having that Columbia severity rating skill that we started off, we did inpatient first, but we rolled it out to the whole enterprise. So if you walk into Children's, whether you're in the outpatient clinic or whether you're in the main hospital, uh, they're getting suicide screening. And based on the screening, then we'll determine the interventions on the medical units. If that were to happen, then they'll get a one on one. As a psych patient, automatically they get a one-on-one anyway, right? right? But even if they're positive for suicide, that's a high-end alert to all of us that work within that division, right? And then in psychiatry, we screen the kids every day, all the kids. When I also built the new unit, we were able to put in bells and whistles. For example, I have an alarm on the door, so if someone is trying to hang themselves, the alarm will automatically go off. Wow, That will alert. And on my old unit, prior to coming to this new unit, I didn't have all of that. So again, when you build, um, I was able to put in, for example, I could turn off electricity and water. We have kids that will put lead pencil into the socket and that could start fire, right? The people that set fires. You have kids that would stuff the toilet with socks and the toilet would start overflowing. I could shut off their water to their toilet. These were all things that we never had before. Right. Based on some of my experience I was building, I was able to put this into the building. You know, So we've done some really cool things that we never envisioned. Uh, we could have done this when I started. And, um, so, and then the restraints was my first love. I still haven't lost that, but that was my first love when I started. And I got exposed to that when I was at Hopkins for my leadership, my BSM program to graduate, I took restraints as something that I wanted to work on. And once I did that and I saw how much there was in the literature and how much you know, needed to be done, for me, that was something that kept with me. And yeah. I moved into my leadership. It was something that I held on. I had the privilege to present internationally and in the United States in terms of some of this work that we've done. So it's, it's been great.
0: Now tell me how you, from a, from a leadership perspective, how did you take that uh, reduction of restraint use? Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you uh, take that and present it and have buy-in from, from the yes. people that worked, uh, worked with you?
1: Yeah, so it's like I've said um, in some of our talks, it's the stakeholders. You have to engage your stakeholders and the stakeholders are your division chief, right, the chief nursing officers, you know, the quality people that we work with, right. Um, when I got to Children's, there was a whole different concept in terms of how kids were being managed. And having my exposure, I also had a, a director of medical, uh, medical director for the unit that also came from Hopkins. So our values sort of aligned, right. Um, they knew what they were saying before I got there. She was interested in doing. Actually, she's my division chief now, so mm-hmm. we have almost about seventeen years of working relationship, wow. you know. But when I started off, she and I were we were partners. I was the manager for the unit. She was the medical director. And given our background, believing in the ethos of Hopkins, you know, from a safety perspective and how they managed, um, she did her um, psychiatry residency at Hopkins, training at Hopkins before she came to Children's. And I worked as a staff nurse at Hopkins. So, you know, it was a no brainer that we all knew that this is what needed to be done. Um, So I'll say it makes it a little bit easier, but the people above you, apart from psychiatry, you have to convince them too, right? You have to tell them what you're doing, exactly.
0: Align the goals, right?
1: Exactly, align those goals and make sure that it also fits with the values of the organization. Mm. Where's the organization going? And this organization goes somewhere and say, this is what they're doing in their department of psychiatry. And if you look at the literature, I mean, Massachusetts was a state that was doing some great work, right? The Harvards and the Yales, they were doing some excellent work. But when you come on the East Coast on this side, maybe Hopkins and some others, but it was far and in between. So how do you also put Children's Hospital on the map, tell people the work that you're doing so they can begin to appreciate what is being done?
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely, and and for the sound of it, you've you've taken the opportunity to uh, to spread the word, not like just yes. and that. And I think that's one of the key things that I appreciate about most of the uh, people I have the privilege of talking to is uh, they share the wealth, right? You've, yes, you've, absolutely. Share the knowledge, and and I think that's key. Yeah, yeah, yeah. know. Key.
1: we've had the chance. I mean, I presented a while ago, but in two thousand and ten, uh, I was a lead presenter at the American Academy of Child listen psychiatry. This is a body of physicians, and I was a yeah. registered nurse presenting with my some of my colleagues. Work done by nurses presenting to doctors. You know, I even got invited to go to Kansas to present some of my work. You know, at a, 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 a it was a, it wasn't a full psych hospital per se, but residential. Mm. It was a residential that yeah. I had to go and present. You know, and again, the work is doable by a lot of time, there's a culture that's ingrained, right? Right. So the leadership has to be transparent. And we have to make it clear that we are willing and able to accept people for who they are. But we want you to declare that your practice in the past hasn't been evidence-based and that you're ready to convert. And we're willing to take (laughs) you and lead you to a path of righteousness, which means that, (laughs) You're willing to do the work from where you came from and existed right. in the past. Now, this is the evidence, body of evidence. This is how business needs to be dealt with. And we are going to hold you accountable. How you practice in the past, we're not going to hold that against you. But going forward, if you don't, we would. And if that means we have to get rid of you, we would. Right. Right? So, mean,
0: accountability has to definitely be a, be a component of, of, of change. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. It can't be business as usual. Right. And I can tell you, even in my own department, there was some pushback. Some of the nurses, we've practiced this way. How dare you? You just came in today, <laughs> new kid on the block, and you're causing a lot of waves. We never had all these problems. And, you know, you're definitely going to ruffle some feathers, but you have to stay the course, and you have to engage them and say, guys, we could do better. And when we arrive where we need to be, we'll be recognized, and people will know who we are, and people will be looking up to us.
0: And it's what's best for the patient as well. Absolutely, I mean, absolutely. At the end of the day, our work is around that, as how do we make our patients or put the community in a better place uh, than before. I think that's key. That's definitely-
1: I, I, Absolutely. And, and there was a record. 130 kids had died because they were being restrained. Wow. Sometimes not being restrained the right way, or they were you know, being put in seclusion and nobody was checking up on them. right? So when we are backing on this journey, we have regulatory that is asking us, you got to do a better job. right? But we also have to do well by the patients and their families. Right. I mean, that's our existence. We're not at this job just for the sake of being there. We're there to do well, to make sure that the child is being careful and that they have a good experience that they can go. And if you look at the literature, if you put someone in seclusion or restraints, there's no body of evidence, nobody can show me that says, oh, well, this is a scientific benefit that the child gets. We do it because we don't want the kid to hurt themselves and hurt others. But my question is, are there other ways that this can be managed? And if there is, then we have to look at it uh, from that perspective.
0: Yeah, it should definitely be a, the very last resort. Absolutely. The last resort. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, unfortunately, yeah, a lot. It's it's more convenient to go yes. to. Yes. Or in early. Yes. It's more convenient. Uh, I, I agree with you. But yeah, if there's definitely any other way to do this, uh, uh, we have to definitely, I think from an adult perspective, I mean, it's the same thing. Yes. Uh, it's uh, too quick on the draw with the risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, too quick. Um,
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, when certain nurses work, you know, uh, you know, seclusion is going to happen, right? Because they have their own way and how they bump heads. So there's a whole retraining, you know, of the staff and, you know, and for us, we also make it hard for them. We have a six page psychosocial uh, uh, paperwork that they have to fill up. (laughs) The, The first page has to do with, did we do, there's a checkoff list, right? So it's very easy. The second page, we're collecting data and we're putting in a database, right? So if you come to me, I could tell you what time of the day, what age is likely to go into the restraints. I have all that data, right? So that's another piece. And then we have a debriefing form with the patient that needs to be filled out. It's two pages. Yeah. And then we have a debriefing form for the staff. So yeah. when it's all said and done, it's about five to six pages that they have to fill out for every seclusion that happens,
0: wow,
1: right? So it's not just I'm throwing someone in there, but you also have to have the paperwork to back you. Right. And so if you can exactly, and you don't have the right paperwork and the justification, then we gotta hold you accountable, right? Yeah. So that, that was part of the resetting and letting people know, hey, it's not business as usual. In the past practice, they didn't even believe in, let's say a, use, a little use of PR in medication. Like they will just put the kid in seclusion and close the door and let them be an hour or two until they're ready to depend on the age and the parameters yeah. from a regulatory perspective. And we change that, that a child should be able to walk to you and say, Mr. Bannerman, I feel like I'm about to go off. I'm going to hurt someone. You know, the demons in me, I'm feeling bad. Right. You know, I, I need a small amount of medication to help me calm me down. I'm going to use my coping skills, but I can also use a little small medication to help me with my anxiety to keep me calm. Yeah. Right. So, having the audacity to go to a nurse and ask that, I think is a privilege for the child, but it's their right. It's their God given right.
0: right. And, and it's if, empowering the patient, right? They're exactly. The, the,
1: exactly.
0: Patients you know, advocate for themselves.
1: Right. So, it's a large result, but the patient can advocate. The patient can yeah. come to you and request that. Versus, oh, well, we put them in there and then when they come, we take them out without any of these resources.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. Absolutely. Now you're working on some new stuff. Yes. Uh, What are you working on now?
1: Well, new stuff, uh, new kid on the block. So the latest thing that we're doing, um, and I think it's really kind of cool, is that uh, when COVID started, some of our patients um, that have COVID Of course, they can be in the general setting on the psych unit. But whilst they're waiting to be cleared, quarantine and all that, we believe that they have the privilege to still benefit from care. So one of the things that we're building, and hopefully we'll collect some data, get it published at some point, is to make sure that they're able to attend groups. So we're looking at the possibility of using an iPad or a digital tool that they can join us from an inpatient bed on the medical units and be part of our group process. So that's something that we're wow. working on. You know. So I think one thing that I think COVID very, very bad. But one thing we've learned from COVID is that we can really take the virtual uh, platform to a whole different level. So now that we've learned that, how can we branch out using the vi- uh, virtual uh, platform to begin to engage patients wherever they may be, right? Before you and I even to do this interview, I mean, I may have to fly to Cali (laughs) or be in Cali for business and then link up with you to do the taping, right? But look at today with Zoom, look at Zoom. I mean, how Zoom has changed us in the last year. I knew about Zoom through Hopkins, but it wasn't that big. And today, Zoom is huge. I mean, so that's the next level, taking Telling, you know, psychiatry to a, a whole different level. How can I engage a patient who may not be on my unit, but they can still benefit from psychiatric care? And, and that's what we're working at. Wow, you know, how great. we make that bigger and better.
0: That's fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we're, we're about out of time. Uh, I want to definitely thank you for being here. Um, anything else you want to share with us? Uh, yeah. 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 Or- um, for our nurses out there that are listening.
1: Yes, so um, you got to think outside of the box. Um, A few things I'm going to say, you got to take care of yourself. So figure out a way to manage your stress, whether you cook, run, music, writing, journaling, whatever it may be, you have to find that niche because the work that we do is a very delicate work and something that maybe in the future uh, um, conversation with you, we can touch on. Uh, even the nursing profession, um, I went to present at Hopkins and I found out that some nurses are actually also hurting themselves and thinking about committing suicide. There's help on the way, Absolutely, yeah. uh, 1-800-SUICIDE-LINE, and they'll help you suddenly, um, you know. So that's something that we definitely have to, you know, pass on that message. The work is very stressful, and we have to get our nurses, you know, we have to get them in a place that they're safe to talk about their own mental well-being. and that the impact that it has on them so I think that's something that is worth looking into um, as we move forward but um, certainly um, from someone who likes business for your first paycheck for you all new nurses have a budget don't blow your check live (laughs) within your means right because suddenly you know and then if you have the means and you can buy a house or do something like that we want you to invest in your own future, because at the end of the day, that's what it's all about, you know, but critical to have a budget and live within your means, exercise, you know, mindfulness, yoga, whatever it takes, because we have to be, we have to be balanced when we come into the clinical setting, you know, from all the stuff that we go through, the stress, and you can't do a great
0: job when you are not balanced. So that would be my big advice to them. That's fantastic. That's excellent advice. I wish I had gotten it when I I had graduated. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Well, I want to
1: thank you, Dr. Ali, for hosting me. It's been a privilege and I look forward to you and I working on some more projects where we can do some volunteer work and bring more people to, you know, make them aware about some of this work that we're doing.
0: So be fantastic. Thank you for hosting me. That would be fantastic. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, we have been listening to Reginald uh, Bannerman, uh, Director of Nursing and Services and Psychiatry uh, at Children's National Health System. Thank you so much for being on the show. And I wish everybody a great and fantastic rest of your week. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Ali. Much, much appreciated. Thank you. You've been listening to The RN Mentor with your host, Ali Tayeb. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayip.com. That's www.aliartayip.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair wins and following Z's.